On April 3, 2017, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a book talk with Melissa Williams, professor of political science and founding director of the Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto and senior visiting scholar at HKS. Professor Williams is co-editor of a book titled East Asian Perspectives on Political Legitimacy, Bridging the Empirical Normative Divide. Responding to the remarks was Tang Dong Bai, the Dongfang Chair Professor of Philosophy at Fudan University in China and the Berggrun Fellow at Harvard's Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics. Arkan Fung, HKS Academic Dean and Ford Foundation Professor of Democracy and Citizenship, moderated the discussion. Features of governance such as fair elections, universal suffrage, the rule of law, and respect for basic rights generates both, is thought to generate both normative and empirical legitimacy. China and some other Asian societies lack these particular democratic characteristics. So, this is the audience participation part. How legitimate do you think the people of China regard their government as being compared to the United States? In a series of surveys of Chinese citizens conducted by Tony Sage several years ago, he reports that between 80 and 95% of those who responded to the surveys reported being relatively or extremely satisfied with central government. By contrast, in 2016, in an associated poll press of the United States, only 20% of Americans report being enthusiastic or satisfied with, quote, how the federal government is working, while 78% report being dissatisfied or indeed quite angry. So, even if these figures are pretty far off, there's a worked debate about how we should regard survey research in authoritarian contexts, it's clear that Western societies don't have a monopoly on legitimacy, or at least empirical legitimacy. So this means that the Chinese government successfully legitimates itself, at least in the empirical sense, in some different and distinctive way. Maybe it's by delivering the goods through economic growth. Maybe it's by putting in place rulers and other elites that citizens believe really care about them or are devoted to some conception of the common good. Or maybe it's because there are other kinds of checks and balances as some Sinologists have argued. We'll explore these and other issues this afternoon. Melissa will begin the discussion with a presentation of some of the arguments from the book. Melissa Williams is a professor of political science and founding director of the Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto. She's a fantastic democratic theorist whose work focuses on problems of group-structured inequality, social and political marginalization, and cultural and religious diversity. She's working on two books now, Equality and Reconstructing Impartiality. Um, after Melissa's remarks, Tangdong Bai will briefly respond. Tangdong is the Dongfang Chair Professor of Philosophy at Fudan University in China. He's currently a faculty fellow in residence at the Edmund J. Safra, is it Foundation Center or just Center? It's just Center. At the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics, 
this year, where, uh, while he was a fellow, he's exploring Confucianism-inspired alternatives to liberal democracy in both the domestic and global governance contexts. His research interests include Chinese philosophy and political philosophy, especially in the contemporary relevance of Chinese political philosophy. Uh, he uh, lectures in Chinese and English all over the world and is also involved in other social activities and organizations. All of the lecturing and the organizational involvement aims to promote new political norms that draw their resources from traditional Chinese philosophy and are, for and are informed by comparative philosophy and political theory. Over to you, Melissa. Okay. Well, I'm going to get up and speak from the from the podium. Thank you so much, um, Archon, for that for mm -hmm. that introduction. And uh, I really want to express my thanks to to the Ash Center for for sponsoring this talk, and to the Safra Center also for publicizing it. I'm really great to see this coming together with the two communities. I want to especially thank uh, uh, the staff at Safra, Melissa, and. Jesse and Sarah and Will and Dan and Jessica all come together to put on these fabulous events. And I'm just so grateful to, to be here this year. It's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. And it's a real pleasure to present some work that actually brings together two of the pillars of, of the Ash Center, the Democracy Pillar and the Asia Pillar. So um, I'm really pleased uh, to have this opportunity. I also want to thank uh, Tongdong in advance. Uh, who knows if I'm going to want to thank him after. undertaking <laughs> 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 the job of commenting. Um, you know, it's rather a daunting thing to, to try to respond to a book that includes so, such diverse uh, contributions that are methodologically and philosophically quite different. So uh, that's a big job to take on, and I'm, I'm grateful that he did it. I also want to uh, thank uh, John Berger, uh, editor at, at Cambridge University Press, who, uh, who's responsible for uh, the, the book being published there. And so I really want to thank you for your support, John, and for coming today. And, and thanks to everyone for, for tuning out. Um, so I want to begin by saying a few words about how someone like me, a democratic theorist with absolutely no pretensions to expertise on East Asia, would come to be involved in a project on political legitimacy in East Asia. Um, and so the book grew out of um, so the book grew out of a larger project called East Asian Perspective on Politics, whose broad purpose was to advance the field of comparative political theory, um, which is broadly speak lateral traditions and the way we define what political theory is. And so the, this project was a multi-year international collaboration between scholars working in East Asian thought traditions and scholars working in Western traditions, and it proceeded through a series of six workshops held at leading universities uh, throughout East Asia with a final workshop in, in Canada. And despite our very different um, areas of expertise, philosophical commitments, and methodological approaches, our project team members all converged on the judgment that fostering new work in comparative political theory uh, is uh, rather urgently important. Um, for many of us, this judgment arose at least in part from our reflections on globalization in a world of increasing economic and political interconnection, uh, which generates new human-scale problems, such as global warming and pandemic disease and global financial crises and so on, we need to find normative languages through which we can actually deliberate about these uh, issues, and we need uh, better ways of understanding uh, one another's uh, normative uh, approaches to the problems of politics. The enterprise is also informed, uh, at least for some of us, and certainly for me, by insights gained from feminist theory, 
from uh, critical race theory and from post-colonial theory, um, which all of which have generated uh, really potent resources for assessing and responding to uh, the potentially false claims of universalism thought, and that uh, that concern. Um, certainly uh, may arise with respect to theories of politics that um, are applied to non-Western contexts but rooted in Western intellectual traditions. So we want to keep open the possibility that there may be some false universalisms at work in our theoretical understandings for framing for understanding politics, which have diffused through the global academy but remain rooted in Western intellectual traditions to a very large degree. So decentering Western thought and the way we define political theory requires first acknowledging how dominant uh, Western intellectual traditions still are in the concepts and frameworks we use to understand politics, but it also requires serious and sustained intellectual engagement between excellent scholars with grounding in Western thought and those with grounding in non-Western thought. Otherwise, we risk just and of creating an area studies version of political theory uh, rather than seeing ourselves as engaged in a joint uh, enterprise of generating uh, a theory that is valid and generalizable across political contexts. Um, so the, the project as a whole was, was aimed at generating that kind of serious engagement in a way that would also produce new uh, intellectual networks within the region, within the particular countries where we met, um, and globally. Um, to keep these conversations going. So for each of the workshops, um, what we did was to uh, work, and took a lot of work, to define a, a key concept uh, that we agreed had traction in both East Asian and Western thought traditions. And then we recruited scholars to uh, uh, participate in workshops addressed to those concepts. Each works, workshop, they were, they were all different in their structure, but Roughly speaking, we tried to organize each around three axes of comparison. So there's an east-west component to each one, uh, an intra-Asia axis of comparison with an emphasis on China, Korea, and Japan, and uh, an historical contemporary, or in this case, an empirical normative um, uh, dimension. And, um, so each workshop was led by a political theorist at a leading regional uh, university, with, again, with the aim of building uh, networks. Um, and in this case, it was led by Joseph Chan, a, a scholar of Confucian political philosophy at Hong Kong University, um, who, as it happens, um, I'll just make a little plug, is going to be here on May 23rd, <laughs> uh, another uh, joint Ash-Safra endeavor here. Uh, it's going to be held in the Safra Center, and he's going to be speaking on a theme quite uh, uh, relevant to our, our themes today, namely on uh, democratic equality and Confucian hierarchy. So... Uh, if you're interested in further inquiry, that would be a good place to go. So, so why did we? So, why study legitimacy comparatively? Why did we choose this concept? There are two main reasons. First, it's a very important concept in the study of politics uh, in general, and second, we uh, need to be open to the possibility that the theoretical framework scholars have used to understand political legitimacy. Um, are rooted still in Western intellectual and political development in ways that might impair their usefulness or their applicability to non-Western uh, contexts. So, um, political, uh, okay, so, so political, sorry, let me go back. Political legitimacy is uh, a key concept, and some think the key concept in the study of political order at the scale of the state. We need the state to uh, solve collective action problems. And here I'm, 
um, drawing on the ideas of Eleanor Ostrom and on Jenny Mansbridge's recent work on legitimate coercion. The, 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 the idea is that the state solves collective action problems, such as providing security or roads or clean air and water, um, through its coordinating function backed by coercively enforced law. And here's where legitimacy comes in, because coercion is costly. It's morally, economically, and politically costly. So what legitimacy does is it generates voluntary compliance with the commands of the state. Um, and so in a legitimate order, people obey the law because even if they might disagree with a particular law, they think that it was generated by a government that had the authority to make it and that by and large that authority can be justified from a normative point of view. So this helps to see, and, and uh, Archon's already flagged this for us, um, that there's a two-sided uh, character to the concept of political legitimacy right at its core. It has both an empirical and a normative dimension. You know, and I won't go over this too much because Archon's already covered it. Uh, on the empirical side, what people refer to as sociological legitimacy really concerns, has an, a behavioral component and an attitudinal component. The behavioral component is, do people actually comply vol uh, uh, voluntarily with the state's commands? Do they pay their taxes and so on? Um, and, and the attitudinal one is, do they actually uh, affirm um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the valid authority of the state? Um, and then the, the normative question, uh, the normative side of legitimacy is whether, um, uh, you know, since voluntary compliance is based on people's belief that government's authority can be justified according to reasons they think are valid, then we need to understand first what reasons they see as the valid justification for political power. And then we also, there are two, there's there two subparts of this, is that's one side of it, what, do, what reasons do they find um, obligating or, or validating? And then what do we, assessing these arguments, make of them? Do, are they valid only for them, or do we see them as valid for us as well? So there are sort of two ways of getting at the the normative side of legitimacy and normative political theorists invest an awful lot of work into uh, developing coherent theoretical accounts of what, what makes for uh, legitimate political order. Now, of course, sociological and normative legitimacy can pull apart. Arkhan also mentioned this, you know, is Putin a legitimate ruler? <laughs> well, if you look at his approval ratings, absolutely. From the sociological perspective, yes. If you assess him from our democratic standards of legitimacy, well, no. And it can go the other way around, too. If we look at uh, Obama, um, who, from our democratic standards of legitimacy, had, had a claim to normative legitimacy, that we look sociologically to red state voters and birtherism, and we can see that there's a gap <laughs> there, too. So, uh, so these things can, can pull apart, and, it, and it's um, important to analyze them separately, uh, but also to bring them back together. And there's a tendency in the scholarly literature still treat the empirical and the normative dimensions uh, as separate enterprises. Um, and a core supposition of this book is that actually if we're going to understand political legitimacy in a given context, we need to bring these two pieces back together. Um, and David Beethan made this argument a long time ago, but it's still not followed through on by a whole lot of scholars working on legitimacy. The normative theorists don't tend to engage the empirical literature and vice versa. 
So we're, we're trying here to bring these things together. Um, now, there are two kind of core, two core questions that we're trying to, to address here. Um, the first is, uh, what are the empirical patterns of legitimacy in East Asian societies? A clear uh, uh, empirical question. And are those patterns different from other from patterns of legitimation in other parts of the world? And the second is, to the extent that there are distinctive empirical patterns, do they reflect distinctive uh, normative conceptions mm -hmm. of political legitimacy? In particular, is there a different normative logic for justifying political uh, authority that's at work in East Asian contexts as compared with what we find going on in Western democracies? Now, studying this two-sided empirical normative uh, character of political legitimacy is kind of a complex undertaking, and it requires disaggregating the factors that go into citizens' <coughs> judgments of a state's legitimacy. And I, I don't have time to go into a lot of the detail here, but I do want to highlight a couple common distinctions in, in the literature on legitimacy, because they're relevant for making sense of the East Asian case. And the first is just the distinction between regime uh, legitimacy as compared with governmental legitimacy. So regime legitimacy concerns, you know, is, is this regime type, monarchy versus republicanism, or more relevantly for us, authoritarianism versus democracy, uh, regarded as legitimate by the citizenry? And then the second question, governmental legitimacy, is, is this particular government legitimate? Um, so there are two, two distinct questions. Um, and then there's also a distinction that's useful for our purposes between process or input legitimacy and performance or output legitimacy. So process legitimacy has to do with basically with legality, uh, with wh whether or not the people holding uh, positions of political responsibility have or hold those positions through a due, a due appointment process and so on. So do they have valid authority? Uh, then performance uh, legitimacy concerns whether or not they're using that authority uh, in a manner that citizens approve. Um, so from here, I want to just go on to the um, empirical findings that, that uh, are generated by their, the different contributions in the book. And one is, um, and both of which point up some kind of puzzles of, of exceptional patterns in uh, East Asian political legitimacy. And the, the first is the puzzle of ambivalent support for democracy and the rule of law in East Asian democracies, something that emerges especially in a chapter on South Korea by mm -hmm. Do, Do Shin and Yang Ho Sho, but it's supported by other studies, including work by Yun Han Chu and others in the uh, World Value Survey uh, field and in the Asia Barometer uh, project. So what the, the, the puzzle is this. Elsewhere in the world, uh, studies of regime legitimacy show that where democracy has been established, most citizens regard it as the only game in town. Citizens don't believe that any alternative regime is acceptable. In East Asian democracies, though, a smaller percentage of citizens um, regard democracy as preferable to authoritarianism, and a larger percentage express a willingness to return to authoritarian forms of rule as compared with their counterparts in democracies elsewhere in the world. So it's important not to overstate this. Two of the chapters um, on Taiwan and Japan marshal evidence that de democratic regime legitimacy is fairly robust there, but these overall patterns have been fairly well established. 
The second is the puzzle of the legitimacy premium, um, um, which Bruce Gilley in his chapter demonstrates through uh, a lot of empirical research. He also published a longer study, a book-length study of this, on um, which this uh, chapter, um, uh, his research is this chapter draws. So the puzzle concerns the metric of performance legitimacy. In most contexts, citizens' assessments of a, of a government's legitimacy uh, varies with the government's economic or political performance. Um, um, so GDP changes and how a government handles a crisis, like an environmental crisis or, or an earthquake or whatever, um, uh, has an impact on how citizens assess the, the government's uh, legitimacy. But in East Asian societies, both democratic and non-democratic, people tend to support their governments at a much, at a significantly higher level than we would predict, given their judgments about state performance, as compared with other contexts. So, taken together, these two puzzles generate some confounding problems for social science rooted in modernization theory, including the prediction that economic development brings with it a value change in the direction of pro-democracy and pro-rule of law attitudes. And maybe these puzzles just mean that modernization is still in process uh, in these contexts. Um, that's one, one view. Uh, or maybe it means, though, that there's a flaw in the theory's assumption that economic modernization and democracy go hand in hand. Um, more specifically, maybe what it means is that there are other value commitments at work here that can coexist quite stably with, mo with economic modernization and that these underwrite an alternative normative count of political legitimacy. So, uh, so the question that emerges from these puzzles is whether there might be a distinctive normative account at work in these contexts that can help to explain the puzzles. And we can't claim to have answered this question conclusively, but taken as a whole, the volumes chapters suggest that the answer might well be yes. Uh, some of the chapters adopt a, a qualitative approach, some adopt a historical approach, some uh, uh, adopt a more quantitative uh, approach. Others, like Daniel Bell's, adopt uh, an approach of philosophical reconstruction of normative ideas of legitimacy rooted in broadly Confucian political culture that's shared to varying degrees across these contexts. But taking these as a whole leads us to a provisional reconstruction of a normative conception of political legitimacy that has historical roots in the region and in Confucian political culture and is different from conceptions of political legitimacy rooted in ideas of um, the equal status of citizens before the law and protections from civil, for, for civil and political freedoms that are characteristic of Western liberal democracy. So we call this, and excuse my pronunciation, Minbend legitimacy, uh, drawing on a concept that translates as the people as root. And it's, com it's a common term in Confucian thought. I, I hope uh, Tong Tong will affirm. Um, and, and I just want to highlight, we highlight three features of what we're calling this Minben uh, concept of legitimacy. The first is that uh, the, 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 the term itself Minben signals that the well-being of the people as a whole is the defining obligation of legitimate political authority. This is distinct from performance legitimacy as it's based not only on the state's actual performance with respect to the economy, security, crisis management, and so on, but also to the intentions of state officials who hold positions of responsibility. In other words, there's a virtue ethics component to the concept. It matters that officials demonstrate an ethic of care for people's well-being, even if they make mistakes in their decisions. 
This links to the second key feature of Nimben legitimacy, the idea of meritocracy. Those who hold positions of responsibility in state structures should be selected on the basis of virtues and competences that equip them to serve the people's well-being effectively. Um, so th this is a kind of an element of process legitimacy uh, as well in that uh, it's not only about following um, uh, appropriate procedures for appointment to official roles, but also about cultivating and measuring uh, the appropriate talents, um, for example, through civil service examinations. The third feature of Nimben legitimacy may be a little more controversial, um, but it, it's, it's uh, I'm going to call it state-centeredness, that is, the idea that the state is a necessary condition for providing for the, the people's well-being. But there's also a sense here that, that the state is prior to society, that is, that the existence of, it's the existence of the state that constitutes social relationships within a territory rather than social forces that give rise to the state. And this makes for a significant contrast with at least uh, 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 in, in the view of uh, state-society relations as is fairly common in Western, especially modern modernization theory. Now, of course, this is a stylized account of Minden legitimacy. Now, it's not a fully worked up theory, but something along these lines is consistent with the empirical and normative studies in the volume, and it would help to make sense of the two empirical puzzles. Um, if the key criterion for legitimate rule is that state officials are virtuous and competent, then there's no strong reason to prefer democracy to authoritarian rule unless and until it can be shown that democracy generates better leaders than authoritarian institutions do. And if the state's viewed as a necessary condition for the well-being of the people, and indeed there is no such thing as a people that's prior to the state, then it makes sense to grant the state authority to rule even if government isn't performing particularly well at a particular, at a given moment. So, but another important argument across the chapters in the volume is that no one normative account of legitimacy is hegemonic in any given context. Uh, legitimacy is always contested, and multiple conceptions of legitimacy coexist side by side in the minds of citizens and, and in different citizens. Legitimacy's hybridity is especially well demonstrated in the chapter by Waiman Lam on, on Hong Kong, where she uses open-ended survey questions to show that attitudes about legitimacy cluster around two sets of criteria, one captured by ideas associated with democracy and the rule of law, and the other by the ideas we've labeled Minben legitimacy. Among other reasons, paying attention to the multiplicity of legitimacy criteria that are present in a given society is uh, crucial for avoiding the trap of cultural uh, stereotypes and essentialism. So there may, be, there may be a conception of legitimacy that's distinctive to East Asian societies, and maybe it's rooted in Confucian political culture, but it coexists alongside ideas of legitimacy that we associate with liberal democracy. And it's quite possible that at least in some contexts, and perhaps, perhaps through hybrid constitutionalism, uh, they can be quite comfortably combined within a single political order, as indeed Daniel Bell's chapter argues, building on the work of the new Confucian scholar, uh, Jiang Qing. So the cover image of the book captures something, I hope, of this hybrid quality of legitimacy, political legitimacy in East Asian concepts, context. Um, the photograph was taken about a year ago in Seoul. Um, on the occasion of the celebration of the 130th anniversary of French relation, relations with uh, Korea. And the, the statue is of King Sejong the Great, a Choson dynasty monarch who reigned from 1418 to 1450. 
He's famous for introducing the Korean alphabet and for a generally enlightened rule modeled very explicitly on Confucian teachings. I think it's because of Sejong, maybe someone can, can correct me if I'm getting it wrong, um, that, that Korea is sometimes called the most Confucian society in the world. Now, this statue was erected in a public square in Seoul uh, fairly recently, in 2009. The neon adornments you see um, were designed by a French installation art, uh, artist for the celebration of, these, uh, of the history of French-Korean relations. You can also see a democratic element in the, the, all of the, the people taking pictures of the statue with their cell phones, um, which may put us in mind of the, the, the big uh, turnout at the peaceful protests recently um, and the careful rule of law process by which Korea's president was recently impeached and arrested. Um, so dem democratic legitimacy and the rule of law seem to be very, um, very alive and well in South Korea, but coexist along with this uh, um, recognition of uh, Confucian <coughs> political culture. So this picture kind of has it all. It's got East and West, Confucianism and democracy, ancient and modern, and that seems pretty <laughs> hybrid to me. So, so let's say that uh, further research redeems our provisional conclusions that there is a distinctive normative conception of legitimacy at work in East Asian societies, one that uh, exists alongside ideas of uh, legitimacy characteristic of <coughs> liberal democracies in the West. What should we conclude from that? Is Minban legitimacy a fitting theoretical account of legitimacy for historically Confucian societies, but not for Western democracies? Or are there resources here for fresh thinking about legitimacy that might be useful across a wide range of cultural and political contexts? The idea that the purpose of government is to serve the good of the people, the idea that political leaders should be people of talent and good character, these are not notions that are alien to Western uh, intellectual uh, traditions. Now, it's possible that the hybrid formations of democracy and meritocracy that are, are emerging in some East Asian contexts, including China, um, may um, offer some resources for innovative institutional design in other contexts as well, or might offer some interesting angles of insight into a really significant problem for Western <coughs> democracies, namely how to combine the need for technocratic expertise in a complex social world with the need for democratic responsiveness and accountability. Finally, more disturbing, disturbingly for thus, those of us who believe in democracy, uh, East Asian except, exceptionalism on the metric of tolerance, oops, on the metric of tolerance for, oh, well, you saw the picture. <laughs> I don't know how to get it back. I don't know how to get it back. I'm sorry, I'm not very adept with this. But, uh, on the metric of tolerance for authoritarianism no longer seems quite as exceptional as it might even a few years ago. Um, so we need to look no further than the White House today and, and uh, who uh, President Trump's guest is today, uh, President al-Sisi from Egypt, for confirmation <laughs> of this supposition. So I think the possibility for new discoveries, um, new theoretical discoveries, through engagements of these sort are really quite exciting and interesting. So we came away from the project um, thinking that maybe there really is something to be said for collaborations between empirical social scientists and normative theorists in studying multiple legitimacies that operate in different contexts around the world. 
And we hope the insights that we've gained uh, might be helpful um, in developing a framework for uh, collaborative research that takes context, culture, and history very seriously. Different methodological approaches shed different lights on, on the complex light on the different complex dimensions of, of legitimacy. And so we make a plea for methodological pluralism in the study of legitimacy, and we've mapped out a kind of preliminary intellectual division of labor that we hope matching different methodologies to different insights that are relevant to putting the big complex puzzle of legitimacy together. And we hope that that might be helpful to other scholars who are interested in the cross-cultural study of legitimacy. So I'm not going to try to take you through it, but I have circulated the, 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 the chart uh, that, that tries to map different methodological approaches with different contributions to different pieces of the intellectual puzzle of uh, legitimacy understood both empirically and normatively. But in any case, um, the, the, the guiding intuition as behind, as here is as with the larger project is that um, we need to better understand the normative ideas that inform political agents, both leaders and ordinary citizens, who are acting from different locations in our globalized world. Thank you. I'll follow Melissa's example just to stand here. Uh, Okay, so uh, first of all, uh, thank, uh, thank you, Melissa, and uh, for the Edge Center uh, to give me the opportunity to comment on this really fascinating uh, book. And uh, I, have a, m I have my own book pro project, which is uh, three years overdue. Uh, so as a result, now I'm only reading the books I'm forced to, uh, to read. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, uh, I was forced to, to read this really fascinating book. And moreover, I think it's really, uh, I really appreciate the fact that, you know, people like Melissa, you know, like, uh, uh, um, the other uh, scholars in Western political theory who take the initiative to engage in non-Western uh, political theories. I think it's very important. And of course, you know, uh, just it's not, we shouldn't give us scholars too much credit. You know, I think an important reason uh, that people are, are now uh, listening to uh, non-Western theories, you know, uh, is that uh, in spite of the, the optimism, you know, uh, after the collapse of Soviet Union, uh, the, uh, the past decade or more, you know, the West has encountered more and more problems, and uh, roughly speaking, China and some non-Western countries have been doing pretty well. Uh, and I think this is, uh, you know, the economic cause for people to look at, look at alternatives. So although I, I'm really, I don't like a lot of uh, the things the Chinese government is doing, I really want them to pay the price uh, for that. Every day I pray for the, uh, the long life of the Chinese economy because, you know, that's where my livelihood comes from. And, uh, uh, but still, I, I think, uh, in spite of the fact that, you know, I think it still takes uh, us scholars, you know, to, to do something. In, in, uh, other than, I mean, uh, rather than uh, letting the politicians you know, uh, take, taking charge of the discourse, you know, we should out, uh, have our own voice uh, to reflect on, on, on all these issues. And you know, as I said, it's a really fascinating book, so I have uh, uh, written an online, uh, a full page online, so there's the way I can uh, finish that. So I'm going to just uh, take a few main points that are in inspired by uh, reading this book. And one thing I think that this doesn't mention much, but it's so many large you know, throughout this book is uh, the question of modernity. So legitimacy is often viewed connected with modernity. And uh, 
Melissa uh, uh, offers a very fascinating uh, account of all these different uh, modernity theories. And, uh, you know, uh, of course, most important uh, among them is uh, uh, mass murders. And there are also Einstein's and other Others theories, and I think coming to all these theories are, uh, are some features, such as you know, rational bureaucracy, rule uh, of law, uh, and the uh, market economy, right? And uh, uh, in my own recent works, I try to argue that if you look at Chinese history, all these features already were present uh, in China 2,500 years ago uh, during the so-called Zhongqing tra uh, transition. That's why I asked for the uh, the uh, the board. So uh, the Zhou Qin uh, transition so from one uh, regime to another regime, roughly from 11, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, from 770 uh, BC, uh, or BCE, to uh, 221 uh, BCE, right? So that was a, a transition period, and a regime change period in, in, in Chinese history. And if you look at uh, the transition when it emerged, uh, was Market economy. Uh, I think not in the uh, present form, but you know, ag agriculture, land-based market economy, privatization of land, and the free uh, market for uh, sales and uh, buys and sales of, of land. And uh, also, you know, uh, the CHU was known for building the first rational bureaucracy that is based upon primaries, that is based upon equality of opportunities. And uh, also, when you argue that there is a very thin version of law, law that you know, everyone is equal before, law, before the law, of course, other than the emperor. But the emperor, you know, being the guarantor of the law, is not the legislator, is not the maker of the law. Rather, according to the sort of liberalist thinkers, emperors are just the guarantor. Law should be based upon uh, something like man, uh, natural principles, interesting uh, natural principle politics. So we have a very thin version of uh, of law as well. If that's the case, then in, uh, in, uh, in contrast to the, the general uh, perception that you know, modernity uh, was uh, being imposed on non-Western countries, that's West. Uh, you know, in my own very unorthodox thesis, modernity happened already in China 2,500 uh, years ago. And I think you know, the reason I mentioned this is that you know, maybe you, can, you could uh, make us reflect on uh, the nature of modernity. What do you mean by uh, modernity? Uh, and uh, so, um, first of all, why, why, uh, why are there such similarities between you know, 1200, uh, uh, China 2,000 years ago and uh, Europe, you know, um, 500 years ago, right? And uh, actually, uh, you know, I, I think it's my other thesis, yet I, I can prove to you that I'm not the only crazy person out there, you know. For one thing, Francis Fukuyama in his, uh, one of his recent books, argues that the statue is, politically speaking, according to Robert uh, and Weber's, uh, criteria is the first political modern state in human history, right? And then, so, so why is that? And uh, um, so, in my explanation, you know, what, uh, what was before the, uh, the, the, the Chinese modern state and the European modern states is the, the, the kind of regime which we call a federal, uh, the federal, uh, federal regime, right? In a federal regime, everyone is born into a class, right? And so, we are born not to be equal. And uh, you are born into class, you are born into a profession, there is no little freedom, no choice, 
right? And the name is owned by the labels, so it cannot be sold freely in the market. And uh, when they usually club, uh, clubs, what naturally emerged was uh, some sort of equality, some sort of freedom, freedom to learn, freedom to, to choose your, your profession, and, and things like that, also market economy. Right? And uh, also one of was that, uh, you know, uh, I mean, the Philippines, even the United States was divided into smaller pockets. When those uh, regime collapsed, one merge was a large and public state. So now the central government has to run the millions of strangers, faceless strangers. In that sense, you know, uh, bureaucracy uh, is, is, is a natural answer. To, uh, to that issue. So uh, in my own uh, understanding, maybe um, we can inspire modernity uh, with the kind of uh, underlying social and political changes. If that's the case, um, then we can argue that maybe what is essential to modernity is the things that you mentioned, right? Some form of equality, some form of uh, uh, freedom, and uh, some form of law law and uh, uh, market economy. And uh, uh, one thing I'd uh, like to mention uh, this is that you know, in, in Melissa's own uh, article, uh, she, made, uh, she um, pointed out a, a puzzle uh, in, the, uh, in the Western uh, modernity uh, theories. Namely, you know, um, they believe that modernity will lead to democracy. But like other countries, especially uh, some essential countries, uh, you know, fail to achieve that. So uh, how, how could that happen? I mean, uh, that is a puzzle only if we believe that modernity is inseparable from democracy. But in the of the mo uh, uh, modernity, democracy is not inseparable from, uh, uh, from uh, uh, modernity. Rather, democracy either is, is extant of modernity, one possible form of modernity. I mean, that's why I don't want to deny the value of democracy. It could be a very beautiful accent. Accident, right? It uh, could be very useful uh, accident, just like you know, uh, our development of some kind of uh, immune system, right? It could be accident, but we like that accident. And also, it is that always accident that happens to me first, but it doesn't mean that you know, that system cannot be spread among all human beings. Maybe it could be universal, an uh, accident that can become universal, right? But still, you know, I think you know, it might be useful to, uh, to separate uh, democracy uh, from. Uh, from modernity. And if, if we follow my own distinction of modernity and uh, antiquity, or pre modernity, we can argue that, you know, um, for example, you know, pre modernity to Japan and Germany are obviously modern states. You know, obviously, they are not democratic states. Um, and uh, in that sense, uh, some contemporary states are not necessarily modern. Uh, I, you know, for, that, for the level of knowledge, you know, if there are any uh, scholars here, but just credit them. Well, you know, a, lot of, a lot of countries are not modern. It's not that you know, people are still born into pro uh, 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 certain jobs, certain professions. Right? There's no upward mobility, which I think is essential to, uh, to modernity. And related to, uh, to this book, I think in that sense, the pre-modern restoration of Japan was a pre-modern state because mobility still existed. In contrast, other East Asian countries, South Korea, China, and Vietnam, already adopted the idea of upward mobility. Uh, everyone has the potential, the chance, to become a member of the elite in contrast to the pre-emerging resolution of uh, Japanese state. So in that sense, you know, maybe you know, it's a lot misleading to put all the East Asian countries together because they have different historical backgrounds and progresses you know, uh, uh, throughout the time. Uh, 
And, uh, um, and then uh, another little issue is uh, um, uh, yeah. So, so this is you know um, in, in this kind of, uh, paper he put Indonesia. Uh, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, all together in East Asian countries. So I find it deeply problematic because you know, Indonesia is a South Asian, uh, East Asian country uh, which, which has a totally different political history, different political ideology, and uh, you know, East Asian countries, as I read, there may be uh, differences as well. So, um, so maybe we should uh, uh, do more to differentiate uh, among all these different states and different uh, regimes. And uh, the reason I mentioned modernity is that you know, modernity is often associated with the concept uh, of legitimacy, but you know, uh, uh, maybe I'm single-minded. I, I think legitimacy is an external concept. Power always has to justify its uh, authority, right? And uh, by that it means you know, uh, uh, the issue of legitimacy. But um, as Daniel Bell and his other points out, legitimacy becomes significant only uh, when it is lacking, right? When legitimacy is challenged. So in that sense, legitimacy, the issue of legitimacy has always existed, but it becomes apparent when there is a regime change. Uh, uh, for example, uh, and uh, so in, in that sense, you know, uh, uh, the modern reflection of modernity is a result of the change of the pre-modern regime to to modern regime. Uh, but it doesn't mean that you know other regime change, the other regime changes. There's no reflection on, on, on legitimacy. Or you know, um, as uh, uh, another contributor uh, pointed out, um, um, the uh, legitimacy is kind of competitive, right? Uh, you only reflect on the legitimacy of your own regime when there's another regime, there's an alternative. So that's why, I mean, even, you know, understand the ancient Greeks had a, you know, reflected on the issue of legitimacy. And the other, the, uh, the Persian Empire, the, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's composed of you know, barbarians, right? So the barbarians are less civilized. And uh, so their regime is bad, our regime is good. So that's, a, that's also an issue of legitimacy. Of course, you know, the, 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 the change from modernity really uh, 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 highlights uh, the issue of modernity and uh, legitimacy. Uh, so it's not that uh, legitimacy only, uh, all, uh, only comes into being uh, during uh, the modernization um, uh, period. And, uh, and so that's the, maybe the first issue I'd like to mention. The second issue maybe I'll just mention very quickly, um, you know, I, I, one issue I, I, I have I've encountered in this book, really, really other, uh, you know, uh, comparative uh, theory works is that the lack of uh, terminology, right? Because other democracy, we only have authoritarianism, and even despotism. So just, you know, uh, throughout this book, I mean, it's, it's not the fault of any of the authors. It's just, it's just typical, you know. If you, uh, if you pro propose something more democratic, then you're promoting authoritarianism. And uh, I talk a lot in you know, my own uh, uh, works, um, but but maybe you know, we, we should uh, um, we should reflect on this. And related to to, to, to the uh, contributions in this book, you know, um, for example, Bruce uh, uh, Lee called uh, Singapore a legitimate despotism. I was really shocked by, by that description. Uh, and then, uh, but if you look at you know, uh, uh, night place, that's how. That was uh, the of the Japanese one-party system. A lot of the Japanese are doing 
resembles what it's supporting PIP is doing. So if Japanese democracy somehow cannot be a despotism, uh, well, at least you know, the difference is a matter of degree, uh, not in kind. But unfortunately, we don't have terminology to, to make that kind of uh, uh, distinctions. And the, the third issue I'd like to mention is uh, the, 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 um, uh, the idea of uh, confusionism, the, the Chinese features, uh, the Asian battles uh, in, in this uh, debate. Now, my issue is the, the common perception that you know, uh, for, uh, uh, for the Confucians, state uh, you know, uh, before it has priority to society. Uh, and more than much, you know, uh, there's no equality and uh, things like that. But, you know, um, for Confucians, of course, your state is important for the well-being of the common people. You know, uh, there's no deny of that. But it doesn't mean that its Confucians are simply pro-state. I should tell you about that, that you know, the Confucian rule is a sort of independent moral system, and the Confucian scholars can use that to criticize present regimes. Right? So, so, you know, so the Confucian rule uh, is a sort of double edged sword. You could use to defend the state, you could use to, to, to challenge uh, the state. And also, an uh, interesting thing uh, in Chinese history that whenever uh, there's a debate on uh, the monopoly by the state, on economy. The Confucians are often on the side of free market, right? Rather, the so-called liberalist thinkers, you know, we uh, represent the liberalist thinkers, Han Fengzi, and, you know, so the liberalist uh, thinkers uh, tend to be on the side of the state. They are a strong state. Uh, and, uh, um, so in this sense, you know, uh, so the, 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 the Confucian understanding uh, 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 of the state is, I think, more complicated than the common uh, perception. Also in terms of equality, okay. uh, also in terms of equality, you know, as I mentioned, Confucian believe in equality in human potential. Everyone has the chance, has the potential to become as good as anyone else. Of course, they also argue that in reality, uh, people differ. Some make it, some fail to make it. So there is an egalitarian strain in, in, in Confucianism. And, uh, um, so in that sense, you know, uh, uh, when we talk about Confucianism, I think it is more nuanced than the, uh, the common understanding. And in that way, so we can come to the issue of Singapore. You know, Singapore was the one that promoted Asian values, Confucian values. Um, but in my understanding, probably Singapore regime represents more, I mean, I mean, not so much the Confucian philosophy than the other school I mentioned uh, from the Chinese tradition, the legalist uh, 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 philosophy. Uh, for example, uh, in uh, the two Singaporean Confucianist paper, they mentioned that the father of Singapore basically said that you know, uh, we need uh, elites, it sounds Confucian, but then he said that well, we, don't, uh, we don't need them to read the classical works, which is uh, Offense to any uh, Confucian uh, scholar. But you need them to have useful knowledge. If you read, if you read the Hanfei, Hanfei said exactly that. The Confucians are teaching useless things, right? They're a bunch of rules, a bunch of knowledge, right? They're useless, they, 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 uh, he used the term vermin, right? Uh, you know, uh, 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 yes, uh, you know, it's just the past uh, to the side. 
right? And uh, um, then, you know, uh, uh, Li Kuo Sun, uh, uh, the prime minister, oh, saw something uh, similar. He said, you know, why do we have high salaries? Because we need to attract talents. For Confucians, it's about self-sacrifice. And the legalist, how does it argue that you know, people are only drawn, drawn by two things, rewards and punishments? If you can use rewards and punishments, you can motivate people to do whatever we want them to do. Right? If you can motivate them to serve the, the, the program state, then the state will prosper. Eventually, the individual will prosper, but the, state, uh, the state's prosperity comes first. Right? So in the real high salary uh, in Singapore, you know, a uh, uh, political system, um, in my mean, it's really more legalist uh, uh, than, uh, uh, than Confucian. But even in terms of the, uh, the Singaporean uh, contributors' criticism of this kind of practice, it sounds like the Confucian critic, uh, criticism of, of legalism. Uh, for example, it doesn't you know, uh, uh, value people's ambition, uh, self-sacrifice. It has no too many understanding of performance, of interest, and things like that. Um, so in that sense, you know, maybe the Confucian values is a misnomer, right? And I'll just mention uh, one thing more quickly, and then you know, uh, uh, one issue is uh, sort of the, the, uh, the premium, uh, legitimate premium, uh, premium uh, in democracies, but you know, throughout uh, a lot of the contributions in this, uh, in this book argue that performance is really a very broad concept. It, it's not really narrowly defined uh, material interest. I think it's not Confucian, it's not liberalist. It's just a promise uh, understanding of what's important. And uh, um, I'd like to put the issue the other way around. Maybe you know, democracy has a legitimacy premium as well. The fact that you know, a lot of the democratic states have failed repeatedly, mm -hmm. as well, the, uh, 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 mentioned, the, the Japanese uh, are not happy with their, their politics. So they keep failing, but still they appreciate democracy. You know, why is that? So we could say democracy, public sovereignty is a matter of its own. But still, I, I wonder if this regime keeps failing. Will we still be uh, willing to accept public sovereignty as a, as a price of performance, especially if there is alternative. I think one reason that there's no, uh, so far we don't see any alternative. And uh, actually, you know, Manuel, I think, put it very cynically. Uh, 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 he said that, you know, the democratic process in Japan ensures that citizens are free to choose the politicians who will get the blame. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, how long can we do this? Um, so I'll, I'll just stop here. Thank you. All right, we have about uh, 17 minutes for questions and discussion. Yeah. One comment, one question. One comment, one question. Is this on? Yeah. Uh, the comment is just to underline the point that Professor Bauer made. Uh, so much of modern Western political science is about democracy versus authoritarian. Where you you lump together Latin American cardinals and African kleptocracies and disintegrating Soviet empire and, and Iranian uh, theocracy and all other stuff, and it, it makes it, it, it it's a deeper ideological approach that makes science impossible. And it, it makes discussion of all these issues we've been talking about 
uh, physically impossible. Uh, there's a whole literature of political science that's complete nonsense based on this. Uh, and a study like this, I think, helps to bring that out. The question is, uh, traditionally we talk about uh, legitimacy and effectiveness. And uh, if you have a conception of legitimacy, you can measure it. And if you can do public opinion polls or get some agreement on what's important to performance, you can measure that. And then you can look at how much support uh, people give in a given situation and, and see what matters, legitimacy or performance. But the, talking about empirical legitimacy versus non-legitimacy, seems to want to face those things up. Uh, uh, so why, why use that terminology rather than uh, the, the traditional uh, legitimacy, effectiveness, public support? Maybe we'll take a couple more questions. So one more. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Scott. Thank you. Uh, this was actually, I thought, an amazing job of presenting a, a multi-authored book with diverse voices, so thank you. Um, I haven't read much political theory in recent decades, so I, but I'm, I was fascinated by what seems to be a tension in the presentation, and I wonder if you could talk a bit more about how you think about resolving it. On the, you began by, you know, you, you said that the you were looking for a political theory that is, if I got this right, I, I might not have gotten right, but you said valid and generalizable across different contexts. And then later you spoke about taking culture, context, and history seriously, and you emphasized methodological pluralism. And especially the piece about taking culture, context, and history seriously, I think might push against a political theory that is valid and generalizable against across different contexts. So I, I just mm -hmm. wanted to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe I'll start there. I think you're absolutely right and, you know, I, to pick up on, on that. Uh, and I think that actually we have to hold this tension uh, as a, a, a live tension that is going to be ever-present in our theoretical inquiries. That is, we, we ha I think that the theoretical theory by definition is seeking validity across context. Otherwise, it's not theory. Otherwise, it's description. Um, so we are seeking some kind of valid generalizations that we can carry from one context to another. Um, so I think the quest for generalizability, not necessarily universality, but some kind of generalizability and so, you know, we might see that, as Eve was suggesting, mm -hmm. we might see that, you know, attitudes about, well, kind of virtue ethics might be present. So if we were to not call that Confucian, but let's call it virtue ethics as a constituent element in legitimacy, mm -hmm. we might find that virtue ethics is a constituent element in legitimacy in a lot of different contexts, but maybe not all of them. Um, uh, so, so we want to then... Tease, tease out what we can say in general about how important uh, virtue or character are in popular understandings of legitimate political order. Uh, 
so that is there. But at the same time, yeah, and this comes, I think, I think Eve was getting at something similar. At the same time, um, we need to beware of our generalizations because they often are Trojan horses that, that, that bring in power interests and, uh, and also sloppy thinking. Um, that, uh, that, that we need to be constantly prepared to unsettle by looking for and sometimes finding um, particularities that, uh, that, that um, contradict, that, that render our, our provisional generalizations invalid. Um, so we have to be doing both of these things, I think, simultaneously. It's not theory if we're not looking for generalization, but uh, it's problematic generalization if we're not looking for counterexamples or counter evidence. Um, I think that kind of gets to Eve's uh, points as well about, you know, these, all of these distinctions are clumsy and, and they are all, they are all potential vehicles for cultural essentialism and false universalism and false generalization and so on. On the other hand, again, we need to make our subject tractable. And, um, and so, you know, I view these categories as also working hypotheses and, and open questions. You know, is there something distinctive going on in, um, in societies that, um, it, it, that have some history of Confucian political culture? Um, uh, and if so, and that's kind of that's kind of the first pass. Then the question is: it, Is that thing going on only in these societies? Is it going on to differing degrees within these societies? This is why, again, a multiple uh, a political a methodological pluralism is really important. We might find virtue ethics going on in Indonesia and in and in uh, and in Korea, but then when we probe the intellectual history and the discourses that are being used to kind of invoke something like a virtue ethics in contemporary 21st century politics, we might find that the discourses lead us back to very different intellectual histories in those locations, and that they might connect differently with engagements with Western political thought in the last century and a half or so. Uh, and so we need to be good historians of thought, and that, that piece of the puzzle is really, really important. Um, 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 to avoid these, these clumsy categories. At the same time, you know, there is a, a, a theoretical possibility that actually, yeah, having a history of Confucian culture makes a difference in the way you think about politics. And, and so that's also a hypothesis that we ought to keep open. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's important. So here we made some kind of provisional judgments, provisional generalizations, um, but they always have to be provisional until we can dig deeper into the particular, more contextualized histories, and, uh, and, and including histories of ideas and institutional histories. On legitimacy versus effectiveness, and whether that's more useful as a contrast than the empirical normative distinction, I would actually say that, well, no, both of those. So legitimacy versus effectiveness, we might put that in terms of legality versus justifiability, or, I mean, maybe, maybe not. Um, so the effectiveness is, goes to performance legitimacy, and legitimacy, I think, in the construction goes to process legitimacy. Now, these are both normative constructs. Um, um, so what, what dimensions of performance actually matter in a given context? Maybe a response to a, a crisis matters more to citizens in some contexts than uh, performance uh, on, on the economy. Uh, or a security matters more. So we have to understand, again, and, and I think if we, if we 
them, what we're going to find is that there are some normative claims there about you know, why it is that actually security is more important than economic flourishing, or um, you know, what are the understandings of human well-being, human development that are uh, lie at the root of those metrics of, of performance or effectiveness. I think it is normative all the way down. Tony. Yeah, um, I was going to, one point I was going to make is the same as Eve. I mean, when you talked about the question of state-centeredness and the state being prior to society, you know, it made me think of Europe, it made me think of Scandinavia, a whole bunch of places. One thing I wanted to comment on is related to this question of performance legitimacy, which Bill raised and actually Archon started with. And you only quoted one part of the survey I did, <laughs> yeah, local which I think becomes really interesting because, yes, very high satisfaction rate with the national state. We can have all kinds of ideas why. But the people who really deliver public service are local governments, and their satisfaction is extremely low in China. It drops as you get the state gets closer to the people. And so then the question becomes, well, what is driving still acceptance when a lot of people don't think performance is very good in the 30% range. And actually, those are extremely satisfied at the local state level is in single digits a lot of the time. Then I think what becomes important then, and I think you, you touched on it, but you used different phrases, is what I would call basically control of narrative. In storytelling, and it seems to me that is the most important core of legitimacy for any state. You know, if you look at America, I mean, actually the other the, the other reverse arc on in the surveys is while acceptance is very low uh, at federal level, it's extremely high when people ask about local state in the U.S. Right. It's a complete yes. flip reverse because people think yeah. they have oversight. So I think. What becomes very important is do people accept the story that the state tells about itself as somehow legitimizing? And those stories are different in different environments. You know, the varieties of uh, Confucianism in East Asia give... So I think it, it goes beyond just questions of performance. Because some states perform appallingly, but people still see it is legitimate because in some way the narrative that they're accepting outlines a set of relations uh, that they find acceptable. Now, if it reaches crisis point, then maybe it breaks down. But for the most part, I think that becomes a really important dimension of um, ensuring legitimacy for regimes at a national and at a local level. Uh, yeah, thank you. Oh, just pick like two, just pick two. Yeah. So, uh, thank you. Uh, the world is on undergoing a turbulence right now, and uh, we know that uh, the, the economic growth in China is slowing down, and uh, do expect new um, basis for legitimacy in the, in the uh, under conditions of new normal, uh, and uh, actually in, in the inner inner. Situation that uh, the countries need to solve right now, uh, and maybe uh, you told about the fact that we could use uh, non-Western countries' experience uh, to somehow um, 
rethink about uh, our world? Uh, could we use other concepts like Tiensa concept, for instance, right, uh, to uh, to to uh, overcome the challenges that we have today? And uh, my second question uh, will about uh, will be about um, the will of heaven, uh, because I think. Um, you mentioned the, the Minban uh, min legitimacy, and uh, the will of heaven was one of the core concepts in this sense. So can we name it only historical, or we have some reminiscences uh, right now in the, in the modern poem? Thank yeah. you. Okay, so a lightning round of responses, and then I'm afraid we'll be out of time. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so Tony, I think drawing our attention to the story that the state tells about itself is really important. And I mean, I guess the question is, where is the state, where are, the, where are the, the tellers of the state story getting that story from in the mm -hmm. first place? And so what are the historical uh, resources that they're bringing to bear? And how much, how much scope, do, uh, how much flexibility do they have in, in turning the story to their advantage? Um, I mean, one, one story that states tell when they're facing a legitimacy crisis is that the nation is under threat. They stoke up nationalism. And... And, you know, that's one way of generating uh, sociological legitimacy that is pretty hard to justify from within any normative conception of, of legitimacy. So, but I think what you're, what you're saying is we have to be atten attentive to uh, the power relations that are getting, uh, that are playing out in contestation over legitimacy. And um, so I guess I'll, as much as I'll say on that. Uh, um, Melissa? Can I just add one more quick point? Uh, you, know, uh, you know, in Daniel Bell's uh, contribution, he did mention the other side as well. So the local uh, satisfaction with the local government is not as high as, uh, you know, the, the central government. Thank you. Well, maybe you can have the last, the last word, too. Um, because actually, I think you're the appropriate person to respond. Well, it's a question. the appropriate person to ben deny to respond uh, to the last round of questions on economic growth and its impact on uh, sociological legitimacy or the declining growth and, and its impact I'm not going to venture, I mean, again, I don't claim any expertise, so. But it's interesting, it's very interesting to me that you, you point to Tianxia theory as a potential resource. Um, actually, just yeah, I had a, gave a paper in the fellow seminar last week in which I was looking to Tianxia mm -hmm. theory as a resource for, for re renewed thinking about uh, global, uh, d democracy in an age of globalization and ideas of global justice. I have a doctoral student who's working on it as a, a, an alternative uh, theoretical framework for thinking about global justice. And, uh, and Dongdong has been writing on Tianxia theory as well, arguing that it offers a superior a way of, of thinking about uh, global justice. So maybe, um, shall I hand it over to Tongdong for uh, Yeah, for the last, yeah, so if you have any... So, so in the final hour, I'll, I'll talk to you about the, the Tianxia system. But, uh, yeah, right, so, um, I, I don't know. So, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, the, the, the confusion, you know, I think as I said, they live in the sort of warring states, uh, you know, in a way, the contemporary world, even the European in, uh, states in the early modernity are kind of enlarged version of Chinese warring states. And when, uh, so, but, by that, you know, by that name, right, the states were fighting against each other for dominance, and the Confucians were trying to offer a theory of global governance. And uh, so it's not a really sort of an uh, equal nation-state model. It's not the sort of cosmopolitan model that tra transcends a nation-state. Uh, rather, it's kind of a hierarchical model. You know, just to put it very bluntly, it's sort of, sort of a, a Confucian version of world police. So the, the civilized states that 
do their civil duty through the formal lines that police uh, the whole world, making sure that the civilized way of life is protected from barbaric uh, attacks, you know. I mean, so, but of course, I have to translate that into today's language. I think one simple example for state to be civilized is whether it's willing to liberate North Korea. You know, I think that that will be a simple test. If you want to do that, you're civilized. If you don't want to do it, if you respect even that state's uh, sovereignty, then, you know, there's something wrong with that kind of uh, uh, model. <laughs> Great, thank you. So I'll leave people with a, a, a couple of parting thoughts, not so much about the West, but about democratic legitimacy in, in China. It's not more than democratic legitimacy, it's about the, the good society. So sometimes I ask my classes to do a thought experiment that's behind, kind of from Rawls's veil of ignorance, if you, a version of it. If you didn't know who you were going to be, would you, and you could end up, you know, occupying a pretty lower rung of society, would you choose to be born in India, which everybody admits is the world's largest and a very stable democracy so far, or would you choose to be born in China? And people split usually 50-50 on this, right? And so if you're, if you're just thinking about the, the legitimacy dimension and you're kind of an output legitimacy and welfare person, India is pretty clear. If you're a democracy and freedom person, it's not even a question. It's India, right, or for the welfare of China. So, it's a little bit of a, a thought experiment. I invite you to ponder that and, and submit your responses. And part of the answer, I think, has to grow out of more clear thinking about these comparative values and comparative political theory and how we try to meld some pieces from each of these traditions. I think, um, you know, neither of, no, no political philosophy at this point in world history, I think, has a monopoly on it. I mean, none of the societies that are, are performing you know, kind of ticking all the boxes. And so I think the comparative move is exactly the right way to go. Thank you very much. You've been listening to ASHCAST, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. For more information about the Ash Center, upcoming events, and future podcasts, please visit our website, ash.harvard.edu, and follow us on social media at Harvard Ash. <laughs>